The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. It's made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. State and local governments spend about $4 trillion each year. That's trillion with a T. Did you ever ask yourself, where does all that money come from? And where does it go? Who manages it? And what do citizens and taxpayers have to show for it? In this podcast, we explore the budgets, bonds, and bureaucrats at the heart of state and local government finance. This is the Public Money Pod. Okay, well, welcome to the Public Money Pod. I'm Justin Marlowe and joined as always by journalist, researcher, bona fide fiscal policy wonk, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome. Always glad to be here. So today we're continuing our focus on what is perhaps the biggest recent story in state and local finance, and that is these major pieces of legislation coming out of Washington, D.C., And today, in particular, we want to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 and the challenges and opportunities that it creates, particularly in areas like investing in climate adaptation, rural economic development, and especially the intersection of climate adaptation and rural economic development. We're going to hear a little bit later on from Mark Funkhauser. Mark was uh, at one time the city auditor in the city of Kansas City, Missouri. He later served as mayor of Kansas City, Missouri and then went on to be the publisher of Governing Magazine. And these days he runs his own shop, uh, Funkhauser and Associates. And he's going to tell us all about rural economic development and the way that the federal legislation sets the stage for some really unique opportunities for financing different kinds of rural economic development. So before we hear from Mark, though, we want to talk a little bit more just to set the stage about these major pieces of federal legislation. This has been an ongoing conversation here at the podcast. Now, Liz, you've written quite a bit about all three of these pieces, but we want to talk today more specifically about the recent Inflation Reduction Act IRA, which, of course, for, in this case, not a tax-preferred retirement vehicle and also not, for those of us of a different era, a separatist group that became a political party in Ireland, but in fact, the Inflation Reduction Act. And the IRA has all kinds of interesting wrinkles with respect to environmental finance and infrastructure investments for things like climate mitigation. You've talked a lot about that. That's our focus for today. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been reporting and and how you see this shaking out? Yeah, you bet. And and excellent comments on the IRA. Uh, I'm going to just call it the climate bill or maybe the IRA climate bill. Um, it, which is much more of an accurate description and and really what this is about. It's about furthering some of uh, the Democrats and President Biden's uh, goals on um, climate reduction policies. So there's $5 billion overall in uh, potential funding for state and local go- and grants available to states and municipalities. And there's a couple really huge programs that I want to talk about, and one is called the Neighborhood Access and Equity Program. It's a competitive grants program with up to 1.9 billion uh, for projects that improve connectivity and mobility, that reduce urban urban heat effect, improve safety, 
uh, you know, kind of stuff like that all across the board. Priorities given to economically disadvantaged communities, places that have demonstrated a plan for employing local residents. And <clears throat> these grants are available for the next, uh, will open up and are available for the next four years. And what I wanted to point out about this one is that, that it builds on an existing, a, a program that was launched in the um, infrastructure bill. It's called the Reconnecting Communities Pilot Program. And essentially, so neighborhood access and equity is about reconnecting and, you know, whether it's through mobility, whether it's through some of these other measures, economically disadvantaged parts of, of a city or a neighborhood back to an economic center or back to jobs, back to commerce, retail, uh, that kind of thing. The program in the infrastructure bill the reconnecting communities, I mean, by virtue of its name, also does the same thing. It is specifically in reference to tr transportation in terms of highways or maybe even, um, you know, rail yards. It funds projects that would build over through an air rights development, a, a freeway or a rail yard, or you could underground a freeway. But in essence, it is it seeks to kind of erase this that very visible scar of a freeway in a, in a community that also has those that same effect of separating one community from the rest of the you know economic center of a of a city, and so the program in the infrastructure bill allots a billion dollars for this whole thing. The neighborhood access and equity program in the climate bill, like I said, it's 1.9 billion. So in essence, it you know we now have triple the federal funding that that's uh, available now and that's a huge deal it's it's not as much of course as as advocates say that is necessary which is somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 billion but you know in terms of where we were a few years ago it's a lot of money that's available to kind of right some of these environmental justice wrongs that were done around in the mid-century with urban renewal definitely definitely so it sounds like they're taking a a pretty broad view of transportation and, and transit, which makes some sense at some level, right? Given that transportation and transit kind of touches everything. And it sure seems like by maybe ever so slightly expanding that definition, this moves us now into the territory of thinking very differently about how communities look, where economic development happens, where community development happens. Mm -hmm. And so I guess the question then becomes, do we think that the dollars that are here at the federal level coming now down to states and localities are going to be enough to move the needle or is there some expectation here of a state local match lots of investment happening locally that might be kind of catalyzed by this are you hearing that as a policy goal or is this federal money that's designed to do something that the federal government has intended to do for a long time yeah i don't think anybody expects this money to pay for all of the stuff that needs to be done certainly there is an expectation that there will be follow-on private investment um even this the uh Neighborhood Access and Equity Program, it it covers up to 80% of a project's cost, but of course that means 20% still needs to come some, from somewhere. Uh, in disadvantaged communities, it will cover the entire project cost. But sure. let's, you know, thinking about this in practical terms, there's, back in the olden days, when I was a, a Washington DC local reporter, I used to, I wrote about this development over, there was an air rights project that would build underground a freeway that went through through the city and was would build you know green space on top of it buildings all that stuff 
And that project alone, the cost of it is over a billion dollars. <laughs> and so, right, which right. is, you know, so when you think about it in terms of how much these projects cost, of course, it's the federal money is not going to pay for all of what needs to be done. It's going to barely cover a slice of what needs to be done. But I think the idea is that with this money available, there's going to be follow, you know, continued private investment. It's, it moves, it, it nudges places and maybe helps you know, get some approvals going that wouldn't have happened before or help speed things along. Yeah, definitely. Definitely puts these questions about climate adaptation and investing in environmental infrastructure in a kind of broader context, right? Historically, we've sort of seen those as investments in and of themselves, or we need to do climate mitigation because it's important to do climate mitigation. You know, now it seems like so much of it is about, this is an economic development opportunity. This is a community development opportunity. This is a chance to mm -hmm. do something from a redevelopment perspective that maybe would not have been possible otherwise. And so it seems like at some level, the federal money might kind of make clear what's possible, right? Even if it's not the main financial catalyst, it sort of gets people's imaginations working uh, as to what can be done at the local level. And if there's certainly, I think, a strong perspective out there that says that as much as the federal government would like to be driving a lot of the agenda for climate mitigation, you know, given the gridlock in DC and given the federal government's actually kind of limited powers to make things happen at the local level, this might be the better way to do it by simply activating the imaginations of folks at the local level. That's an excellent point. Yeah. And, you know, with there is language in, in a lot of this, a lot of the grants available, not just with the climate bill, but with the infrastructure and jobs act. And even with the, the money through with the, um, the American rescue plan funds, there's a lot of language in there that, you know, encourages engagement, uh, planning and that kind of stuff, you know, so governments, I think, you know, you're totally right. Governments are very much kind of given this startup funds mm -hmm. and in, in that way. And I'm curious in terms of also what's going to happen with the, the you know, with the bond market in terms, because you know, I've heard it, heard it both ways, right? Oh, right. the infrastructure bill is going to stifle state and local governments from issuing bonds because they have this money sitting here. And, and then I've heard the opposite. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious what you think in terms of which way it could go with how this affects the municipal market. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, at this point, it's fair to say that it's a little too early to tell the, the promise of, as we've been describing here, you know, green investing, or uh, I'll, I'll use the word, but we should be careful with it, ESG investing, that certainly activates a, <laughs> a whole other conversation that we don't want to get into here today. But the idea is that there's this whole other group of investors out there who are not coming into these kinds of projects. They're, they're not necessarily interested in the municipal bond market. They're not necessarily thinking of investments in government infrastructure as a way to have the kind of impact that they might like to have. Folks who have typically looked at things like maybe clean energy startups or technology startups that are designed to drive changes in, say, healthcare. And the idea with these kinds of projects that we're describing here is that you can bring some of those folks into the muni market if you give them the right kind of investment, the right kind of project. And that may be the case. It may not. We hear all all the discussion about how there's trillions of dollars in, in wealth that's about to change hands from one generation to the next. And the new generation is very interested in making these kinds of investments. At the same time, when you talk to you know, investment bankers, governments that have gone out and done green bond deals, they say, yep, there's a lot of interest. It wasn't that difficult to market the bonds. However, uh, it's a lot of the same folks who are 
coming back to deal after deal with interest in these kinds of projects. And it does not at the moment seem to be a super robust group of investors. Now, again, that may be just as we were saying with issuers, it may be that there needs to be a few of these kinds of projects for people to see what it what it looks like and to see what's possible. And then you get a lot more governments wanting to do these kinds of projects, a lot more investors who are willing to come into the market to supply that capital. At the moment, it's just early. It's a little too early to tell. Uh, and for that reason, I think critics who say this is not something that governments should be doing are maybe a little bit off base just because I don't know that the evidence is necessarily there to show that uh, you know that that local governments in particular are ill-equipped you know to do these kinds of investments. We know from empirical research that there's not a huge what we call greenium, right? There, there hasn't been a major cost savings to governments who have gone out and done these kinds of green bond projects. But again, in a, in a relatively early developing market, it might be a little bit too soon to to know one way or the other. So I think the, the short answer is on, on the bond market, uh, stay tuned because there's definitely a, a lot that's in the works. I kind of sprung that question on you. Really interesting response. <laughs> it's it's something we're talking about a lot at the center. I think anybody who's working in municipal finance these days is is hearing and talking about these sorts of investments and in sustainability just because it is top of mind for for so many folks. Anything else you want to say um, specifically in the in the world of the IRA and environmental investments? Yeah, well, just one more thing, which is kind of spins off of what you were talking about in terms of greenium and you know measuring environmental outcomes is is that is also a big focus of kind of the reporting aspect reporting aspect of these investments, at least with this administration. And so, um, I think one thing to to watch out for is how local governments, specifically, I mean, state governments are a little bit more robust, but I think local governments how they might apply these funds to do things like measure greenhouse gas emissions and that kind of thing and and how that kind of how they use those projects especially in terms of environmental justice um to kind of crunch the numbers i guess yeah absolutely it's hard enough to know if if these projects are saving money relative to you know either not doing them or doing them through a different borrowing structure or whatever it might be I think it's really hard when you start to measure the impact component, right? And that's the thing that it seems like a lot of investors really care more about is, is it is it reducing emissions? Is it making the world greener? And those are are, are, are big and difficult and, and you know, questions that I think the muni market is going to have to contend with very soon, because that's why a lot of investors are interested in coming into this space. But if you can't offer up a framework for this is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to measure that impact. Then they may, you know, they may not be interested or they may not want to come back for a while. So definitely it, very, very difficult anytime we're, we're trying to measure the impact of public policy, but especially when you get into, uh, is it, you know, is it, is it literally cleaning the air? Is it literally cleaning the water? Very difficult questions to answer. Terrific. Well, definitely more to come on questions about environmental infrastructure and the federal government's role in it. Thanks. So we are very fortunate to have uh, with us a guest who can speak to specifically these questions about the federal government's role in 
environmental justice, in investments in rural communities, uh, the way that the federal government can play kind of a creative role in partnering with states and localities. And uh, to talk to that, we have uh, Mark Funkhauser with us, former mayor of Kansas City, former magazine publisher, currently heading up Funkhauser and Associates, which is a firm that does all kinds of interesting work on the research side related to all things state local government, but particularly on the finance side. Uh, Mark, welcome. It's always a pleasure to have you and especially here on the Public Money Pod. Well, thank you, Justin. I'm happy to be here. Before we do anything else, very important, we're going to talk about West Virginia here in a bit. Season opener on Thursday, backyard brawl, West Virginia, Pitt, Vegas likes Pitt. Who do you got? Well, it depends on where they're playing. I don't know where they're playing. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good point. Key, key, key contextual fact that we left out of that analysis. Well, <laughs> if they're playing in West Virginia, uh, you know, I, then West Virginia's got a significant edge. Uh, in Pittsburgh, it's even money. Interesting. Okay. Well, we'll stay tuned. We won't call that a prediction. Uh, we'll just call it an, an important atmospheric point around Pitt, West Virginia. <laughs> So, um, you know, a lot of what we're going to talk to you today about, Mark, is based on your background, you know, growing up in West Virginia, and uh, you've written quite a bit about the opportunities and the challenges that are facing rural communities generally, but particularly the the part of West Virginia and the part of Appalachia that you're from. And it's a really interesting work connecting these broad federal level trends that, that Liz and I have been talking about to those communities. So I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about uh, your background growing up in West Virginia and how that's informed, you know, why you're talking about these issues and how you're talking about them. I've been all over uh, the United States since I grew up, and yet I always identify myself as a West Virginian. Uh, it was for many um, young people, I think, a, a deeply um, significant experience. And some of my takeaways, one is a tremendous respect for the people themselves. These are tough, hard, smart, hardworking people and really nice, so to speak. Uh, the other uh, takeaway is just how beautiful the place is. Um, I uh, grew up on Whiskey Run, which is uh, out, you know, it's in Wetzel County, West Virginia. Uh, and my wife and I uh, got married at my parents' place uh, on top of the mountain and in the background way way down below you can see the ohio river and uh it's just uh you know it's breathtakingly beautiful had a lot of ups and downs a lot of what the extraction industries uh the most recent you know of course there's all kinds of coal mining and all that and recently uh when i've been back uh you know there's a lot of fracking uh which is not good uh for the environment so um I think, um, you know, I got, uh, I, I had an opportunity to leave West Virginia and I took it. You know, I was, I was interested, you know, as many young people are, I wanted to see the world and do stuff. But I went back a number of times. I, I got my master's in social work at WVU uh, and, uh, and then taught at a small college there for a while. Uh, but always I was looking for sort of wider horizons and bigger stuff. And I think a lot of, of young people were and are. West Virginia has not grown in population and has uh, slightly declined uh, since its peak population in 1950. That's 
as the United States as a whole has gotten a lot bigger than it was in 1950. Mark, you, I think, you know, in part because of that, your West Virginia roots, you wrote recently about a couple of programs going on in Appalachia in general, and uh, that kind of seek to reimagine the, the economy there. So I'm curious, can you talk about that? And can you talk about how the recent federal legislation, both the, the infrastructure bill, the IRA climate bill, might contain some funding for programs like that for infrastructure and jobs? Yeah, I think that sort of in, in, in a series, you know, first with CARES, then with ARPA, then with the IIJA, and now with the Inflation Reduction Act, you've gotten what I would call a bigger and bigger stick for uh, rural local governments to use. It's, it's gotten sort of better and better. And I think the key, uh, so the, the two programs that we wrote about, uh, Reimagining Appalachia, which was to think about it differently uh, and, and from sort of a bottoms up, uh, what, are, what are the people like? What do they want? Not an elite driven, but a ground uh, driven kind of thing. Um, uh, and uh, the Marshall Plan for Mid-America, which was an attempt to include private investment and link up private investment to these public sector kinds of uh, efforts. And I think a key part in both of those is this recognition of the uh, hardworking sort of uh, tough nature of the people and recognizing that they, they both have a focus on union jobs. Uh, and I think that's real important. Um, you know, some of the greatest labor struggles uh, for the last hundred years, and including recently with the huge teacher strike in West Virginia. West Virginia has got a strong sort of labor, organized labor kind of thing that can be used and leveraged in a way that is positive going forward. When, if I were taking my lens that I have today and looking at West Virginia and how they can use uh, this federal money, there's a couple of things that uh, are key, I think. One is to recognize that much of the, the way that people, policymakers generally think about rural, they think about farms, uh, they think about sort of the wide open spaces. And I think that the reality is small towns and the focus on the towns, the towns themselves. If you look at West Virginia, the largest city in West Virginia is the state capital, Charleston, and it's 47,000 people. It's under the 50,000 cap that you know, uh, a lot of times we use. Uh, the second largest, Huntington, is only about 47,000 people. So these are, uh, even the big quote unquote cities in West Virginia are small towns. And yet, when you look at a rural landscape, it is built around those small towns. If that small town is thriving, the surrounding uh, countryside is doing well. And the kinds of things, you know, shifting the, the way we look at infrastructure to uh, 21st century carbon light infrastructure, that works looking at broadband. Broadband is a huge positive for these communities. Uh, in some cases, it probably can be and should be municipal broadband. And I think there's finally a real toehold in the federal legislation to allow that to happen. 
a few years ago, when I was at Governing, I did an interview with a, a woman who was the mayor of Urban, Tennessee. Uh, and Urban is a town of like 10,000. Uh, and she had served the city forever as a city clerk uh, and then retired as clerk and ran for mayor. She was about 65, 70 years old. And I was struck by the fact in casual conversation with her, and then I used a, a real interview for an article, that she said the key to urban survival, she loved the town and she wanted it to go on, but this, the key to survival was keeping its young people. And so she basically, as mayor, convened the young people and said, what, would it, what do you love about urban? What would keep you here? You know, what, what do we need to do? And I thought that was brilliant. And it was small stuff. So you look at a, a town, uh, my wife and I recently were looking at Lewisburg, West Virginia, which is a beautiful place in the, the heart of the bigger mountains, but it's small. It's probably 15,000 people, but it would be a great place to live. So the kind of focus on economic development that focuses on place, capitalize on the assets and the place, look at the you know, housing and all that sort of thing, and try to provide the amenities that would make that place better. Assume that your young people are going to go, uh, if you're lucky, to uh, a major university and set it up so that they want to come home. They want to come back and raise their kids. And that is, that is the whole key, I think, is to use all this federal money in ways that strengthen the small towns themselves. Now, they, they have tremendous place-based kind of assets. You got to, you, know, you got a beautiful place and you got good people and you have each, each individual place has different kinds of things going for it. And you use those and, and uh, I would, you know, if I were advising one of those mayors, I would set up, so to speak, the kind of engagement stuff that Liz was talking about. What do you want to do? How can we do it effectively? How can we pay for it? Those are the questions. Yeah, Mark, uh, earlier you mentioned, um, you know, setting up things, setting up new programs that are, are not elite, but that are driven by the folks on the ground. Can you talk a little bit about like what, what the challenges are for people in these, these rural communities to, you know, move towards green infrastructure without alienating the, the people that are there? The, the key thing is to use local people as your advisors and your spokesperson and your, your, your linkage. Don't just parachute in and say, this is what you should do. But you come in and you find the thought leaders, the people who are respected in the community there already, and you begin to talk with them about what to do. Uh, what, what, what would they like their town to look like? What are, the, you know, what are the things they don't like? What are the things that they do? But you do have to, you're gonna have to find local leaders, local people who, who matter. I recently finished a, a book about water issues in West Virginia having to do with you know, mining, the negative effects of mining on water. It's a, in the book, the guy describes finding the pastor at the local church 
and finding, you know, and, and the pastor introduces him to somebody else who, inter, you know, and, and his first, uh, is, uh, the guy's an environmental lawyer, and he's going to try and help these folks. And the first meetings are in this pastor's church. You know, and if you drive through West Virginia, there's a church at the head of every hollow. You know? And so it's the churches, it's the principal for the local school, it's, you know, and, and it's the mayor. Uh, the mayor, he or she got elected because people uh, had a certain amount of confidence and trust in them. Yeah, definitely. Really, really good points there. So in thinking, Mark, about the, you know, going forward, we've talked quite a bit here about how this is really a, a kind of a game changer in so many ways for local governments, having this level of federal involvement. And uh, depending on how things shake out going forward, you know, maybe maybe ongoing federal involvement as an elected, former elected official yourself and somebody who interacts with a lot of state and local officials all over the place, you know, what advice are you giving today for how communities can position themselves going forward? It's one thing to say, this is the opportunity we have in front of us now. And just as you've been saying, engagement is key. Thinking about place-based strategies is key. What are the, the questions going forward that you think local governments in particular ought to be thinking about when they engage the federal money and the sort of broader federal discussion about these issues? I think, you know, all the, the issues of equity and evidence and so forth, uh, the environment that Liz frequently talks about, those things are critical. But you, you have to keep an eye on the future. And so you have to say, first of all, that one of the first things I would do, again, if I'm, if I'm advising, you know, in, you know, Lewisburg, West Virginia, what you know? What does the budget look like? What are the, you know? What is a ten-year sort of financial outlook? And uh, I would not be surprised if there weren't a structural deficit in the budget. And one of the first things to do is to look at what do we need to do to set ourselves up on a fiscally sustainable path as a local government? You know, are there are there uh, one-time investments that we can make? that would either uh, uh, eliminate an ongoing cost or provide us with an asset that would provide revenue? Is there some way that we can use a one-time shot of capital money to make a, 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 a big change in our structural deficit? That would be one thing. The other thing, you know, and, and that would be the first, you know, because to me, that's like, you know, if I've got an open wound, I first have to, I first have to sew that baby up. And then I would start looking at what are the assets that can be sustainable, that if we built this thing, it would keep on going. We could, we could take care of it in an ongoing way. A, a critical thing there is that the local people have to be invested in it. They have to say, well, this, if, we could, if we could have a X, we would take care of that thing forever because we really need and want X. Uh, and, and it can be very different. It might be a, you know, minor league baseball stadium, or it might be, you know, a new water treatment plant, uh, but something that, that is vital that, that people agree, uh, to the extent that you can get Americans to agree on anything, uh, that that's something they want, uh, you know, so they have to be invested in it. It can't be something that was imposed fix the structural deficit, and then look at assets. And again, thinking about, so this is a great little town. It's really nice, but we don't have a X. 
And we know that people would like to live here if we had an X. And that X, you know, in many cases is going to be something like municipal broadband. Uh, when I was in uh, Missouri, we had a small uh, cabin way out in the Ozarks, about four hours from uh, Kansas City. It was uh, in Mountain View, Missouri, which was a struggling uh, community. And one of my um, neighbors way out in the country was a, a guy who had been laid off from the local uh, factory, probably 60 years old. His, he was an exquisite fiddle repair person. He could make violins, he could repair them, but he had no way to market that skill beyond where he was in, you know, way up the hall of there in uh, the Ozarks. But if somebody had helped him get access to uh, broadband and, and given him a little bit of training on how to use it, he could have sold fiddle repair all over the world. Uh, and those, that's, that's why the internet is just key, you know, is because that, you know, and that, then you can do the remote work and you can do all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, that's, that's what you gotta find a way that individual folks can be connected to the larger economy. So I think a great way to wrap up the conversation is to tell a quick Mark Funkhauser story. So in, you mentioned uh, Kansas City, we all have great Mark Funkhauser stories, but very, one, I think that really sums us up nicely. So the very first academic conference I ever attended almost 20 years ago now was in Kansas City. And I was aware of Mark, but I never met him. Go to the conference. He's there. Of course, you can't miss him. And uh, he's there. He's participating. Everybody knows that at that time, Kansas City, Missouri Auditor is doing some of the best, what today we would call evidence-based work, but really changing the game with respect to bringing serious policy relevant evidence to bear on all of the audit work that they were doing. And so I'm giving a paper, a paper happens to be on local fiscal sustainability, bringing it back to what we've been talking about here today. Mark's in the back. I'm a graduate student. This is a very big deal. I'm giving the paper. And Mark's in the back and he's and he's just shaking his head and he just looks just deeply disappointed in, in everything that I'm saying. And so I, I, I get done with the presentation and I think, okay, well, this you know, this was fun. It was fun to try to to try to be a researcher and try to be a professor, but it's pretty clear that this guy who really knows this stuff thinks that I don't know what I'm talking about. After the talk, Mark comes up and he says, I want to thank you for the presentation. My team is putting together a work plan for an audit on fiscal sustainability. And now we got to go back and rethink some of what we're doing based on what you just said. And so I went, okay, and breathe an enormous sigh of relief, but that was a, a really terrific uh, vote of confidence. But I think it speaks to everything that we've been talking about here, Mark, all of the issues that you've been talking about for a long time and your ability to, to speak straight about these things and also be clear on where the evidence is needed and how to do the best that we can with the evidence that we have. So thanks so much for, for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Oh, happy to do it. Thank you for having me.
Thank you again to Mark Funkhauser for taking the time to join us here on the Public Money Pod, talking about economic development, West Virginia, leveraging federal funds, and all kinds of other great stuff. Always an honor to have the chance to talk to Mark, and we thank him for taking the time to join us here on the podcast. So now, as always, is our extra credit segment. This is audience Q&A. If you have a question, send it to publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu, and Liz and I will do our best to get to it. This time, our question comes from Allison. Hi, my name is Allison. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I feel like I'm learning so much from it. My question is, what is a TIF district, and why does it seem that TIF districts are so controversial? Thanks. Well, thank you, Allison. Excellent question, and we appreciate you being a loyal podcast listener. So TIF district, TIF stands for tax increment finance. And TIFs are a way to try to do economic development in areas where it can be difficult to do economic development, especially certain kinds of bladed properties. The idea is that you have a you have a piece of property that has been neglected for any number of different reasons. As a government, the goal becomes to try to incentivize some additional investment in that property to try to bring developers into that into that space in a way that they might not be. And so one of the ways that you can do that as a government is to essentially say, we're going to pledge any additional property tax revenues that will be collected once this property is revitalized. And we're going to use those additional property tax revenues, what we call the increment, hence the name tax increment financing. We're going to use those additional tax revenues to cover the costs that had to be incurred to rehab the property in the first place. So if we have, for example, an old factory that for whatever reason has not seen any kind of reinvestment, lots of factory spaces have obviously been turned into lofts and artist spaces and those sorts of things. Say we have a piece of property that has not been attractive for investment. You as a government could create a TIF district and say, we're going to encourage some investment and then we're going to redirect the additional tax revenues that happen as a result of that investment. So you might say uh, to a potential developer, you know, if you are willing to do the investment that needs to happen here, if you're willing to do some building demolitions, maybe some cleanup and maybe some excavating on the site, we will reimburse you for those costs out of the dollars that flow into the TIF district. Sometimes governments will even go as far as to do infrastructure investments. So maybe they'll build a parking ramp or maybe they'll improve the stormwater drainage or maybe they'll do any number of other kinds of investments, sometimes finance with bonds that are again, then repaid through that money that comes in through the property taxes that are collected, the, the tax increment, as we say. So sounds like a great idea, particularly if you have a blighted property that needs a lot of work and needs a little bit of a of an oomph to kind of get it on the radar of potential investors. But you can also see a, a couple of potential challenges with this, right? One, the definition of, of blighted has become pretty loose. And in many jurisdictions, properties that many would not necessarily consider to be blighted have been declared blighted and have been granted TIF district status. And so it can be a little bit questionable if we're using it in this kind of targeted way that it's meant to be used. There's also lots of concerns about the oversight of TIF districts, right? A lot of the costs that developers incur sometimes can be measured carefully, sometimes measured less carefully. And so there's critics of TIFs who say that really what it is is, is just a, a sort of slush fund for developers. All, this, all these tax dollars flow in, and sometimes they're used as they're intended to be used, and sometimes they're not. TIF districts can be, in many cases, extended 
indefinitely. So if it's meant to be a kind of short-term targeted investment, sometimes it ends up being a very long-term targeted investment, even if that wasn't the goal. And then a, a sort of broader concern is that sometimes they're just kind of overused, right? The goal is, again, to make a, a precise investment. But in many cities, Chicago, Milwaukee, lots of places, you see sometimes half, sometimes two-thirds of potential property taxable land that's in TIF districts. And so it really changes the landscape of urban development if it can be overused. So for that reason, it's very controversial. And I think that's what Allison's getting at in that question. That's the high level look at TIF districts. Liz, you've certainly heard about them and have talked about them in some of your work. What do you want to add to that uh, explanation on TIF districts? So Justin, I think that was a really good um summation of you know why TIF districts on the, the face look logical and and can make sense but then in practice it doesn't always happen that way one of the largest criticisms i've heard of TIFs is that they they promote expansion in an area you know with population with development uh, which then puts pressure uh, on a county or city to provide services to that area. So now the county or city is paying more money out of its budget to provide services to an area. But because of the TIF, isn't actually seeing any of the tax revenue from that area coming back to pay for it. So it's like an unfunded mandate in, in that sense. Uh, Self-inflicted for sure, but that's essentially, you know, the, the dollars in and out. That is the one that I hear the most um, and why a lot of people that I talk to don't tend to not like them. And I think in particular, a, a criticism is that it really strains school systems, which in the area, in a TIF district, which rely on property tax revenue. And if you're siphoning from property tax revenue to um, incentivize a developer to promote economic development in an area, it's likely they're also uh, attracting families with kids. And then also that strains the school system without any additional revenue source to, to go along with it in terms of those property tax revenues. So that's, uh, and I'm just, I, I looked up one thing. Uh, there's a group called Good Jobs First, which is one of the ones that really doesn't like tips. And they dug up a quote from uh, the Adams count from the treasurer of Adams County, Colorado, uh, in in one of their explanations of why tips aren't that great. Um, apparently, so this treasurer once denounced a roughly like $27 million TIF project for a big box retail store uh, and saying that, he, so the county treasurer points out that if a murder occurs at this mall, the county coroner, the county district attorney, county sheriff, county jail, and county court would all incur expenses and none of them would be paid for or supported by the TIF district. So there's your unfunded mandate in a very morbid way. <laughs> yeah, that's taking the criticism to, to one extreme, that's for sure. But no, but a great but a great point about, you know, when we start at, at some level uncoupling where and how revenues are collected from where services are delivered and how they're paid for, you can naturally run into exactly these kinds of challenges. It's an excellent, excellent set of observations. It's worth noting too, uh, you know, TIF is, is one of a kind of broad family of different types of economic development programs like it. The Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, which is a real leader in this space, has a, a whole series of work on what they call land value capture, which is, mm -hmm. you know, of which TIF is sort of one tool in that toolkit. And if you're more interested in this, there's, there's many who have argued that there are sort of more effective ways to use this basic land value concept and, and to try to avoid many of the kinds of criticisms that we see 
um, of TIF districts. So uh, a great question and a really, really important part of state and local finance and, and local finance in, in some particular parts of the country, including ours. So great question, Allison. Appreciate you listening and uh, keep those questions coming. Don't hesitate to send them to us as always at email publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. To learn more about the center, check out our website, municipalfinance.uchicago.edu. If you'd like to ask a question for our extra credit segment, send a voice memo to publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. To see more of Liz Farmer's work, visit her website, farmersfieldonline.com and her Substack, which is substack.lizfarmer.com. And you can also find her at Twitter at LizFarmerTweets. And thanks as always to our esteemed producer, Eric Gaber. If you like the podcast, be sure to follow us, drop a review, and tell your network. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time. Music.